HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. For those of you who are listening live, I apologize for the late start. We uh, had a little bit of L train issue this morning, uh, stuck on that L train for about 25 minutes, but uh, but we made it here to, to Roberta's. Uh, we're happy to be here, and I'm very happy to be here with uh, actually one of my uh, oldest friends in the in the wine industry at this point. Uh, we have Raj Vaidya. Uh, shit, did I mess it up? No, that's pretty good. Okay. <laughs> I know you for a long time, Raj. We, uh, we took a uh, wine class together back in... Uh, 05? maybe oh six oh five oh five and oh six yeah yeah at the wine spirit education trust right now uh, now raj is the head sommelier of three michelin star pellegrino top 50 restaurant restaurant danielle uh here in new york city um definitely one of the the, the true like icons of fine dining in, in new york uh well I'm so excited you're here. It's uh, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks uh, for having me. And uh, and my neighbor, my upstairs neighbor for your I was going to uh, say, and also uh, one of the great uh, <laughs> accomplishments of my life is I live in the penthouse of your building. <laughs> you know, on moving day... Ad- or the attic, actually. We, we moved in, and uh, typical to, you know, how, how uh, generous and uh, friendly Raj is, moving in, uh, we have all this stuff uh, with my girlfriend. We're, we're sweaty. It's been, it's been a... A whole day of moving, and Raj is like, "Hey neighbors, how's it going? You want to want a bottle of Riesling?" You're like, "Yeah, absolutely." You come over, bring a great old bottle of uh, of Riesling, and sit on our couch and enjoy it with us as we're moving in. But that is, we we love that. That was amazing. Uh, that was fun. So tell us, how did you get from uh, you know a kid growing up in Bombay to the to the head sommelier at really one of the greatest restaurants in New York City. 
Well, it, it more or less is the case that, you know, there's so many Indians in the world, eventually we have to take over all the top positions. It's just a, <laughs> a, a critical mass thing. Well, uh, I grew up in Bombay, as you said, in, in Singapore. But when I came to this country in 1996, I started working in restaurants almost immediately uh, in high school, you know, uh, uh, mostly cooking and cleaning in the early days and then starting to become a waiter. And so I, by the time I found myself with the opportunities I did in the wine business, I had been in the restaurant business for six years five or six years at that time. Was and, this something that you were you were doing just to make your way through high school, or did you, did you know it? Did you, did you love it from the beginning? You know, I, I found a natural uh, affinity for the work, and I liked restaurants. I started, you know, baking bagels in a bagel shop overnight. I started working at 3 in the morning, which was appealing to me at the time because, I don't know, I, I didn't sleep very much. I was 15. Uh, and I just found a natural knack for it. I, I really liked it, although I never really considered it as a full-time career. I went through college, studied philosophy like everybody else in the restaurant business in New York, apparently, especially in the wine business, uh, came out of university, and uh, although I wasn't interested in being an academic, I went into finance. Uh, but all the time, up, up until getting what I would call my real job, I worked in restaurants, and I'd even worked briefly as a sommelier before graduating uh, at a place in New Jersey where I'd been working, once again, in college. Uh, and... I didn't like finance. I came back to the business and I haven't turned back since. I've been more or less in wine the you entire know, time. I talk to more and more people who have gone that route. Even my business partner, August, who worked in finance and it's like, this is not for me. I, I want to get into, surround myself by food. Um, I guess the one good thing about you know the, the finance world is that uh, those people often subsidize and allow us to do what we do. Oh, thank God for them. Uh, hold them dear to my heart. Uh, you know, the finance world wasn't for me, but in many ways what I do today is uh, influenced by my time there, uh, although I was kind of a, a low man on the totem pole, just uh, trading things that I didn't even know what they exist. I still don't know what they are. Uh, but uh, today I get to trade in something I actually care about and, and uh, have a familiarity with and a personal relationship with it. So it's pretty nice. Um would you say that your your youth in Asia spent uh, youth in Asia? <laughs> Would you, All in good time, you, Joe. You All in good time. <laughs> you've not been euthanized, just to be clear. As soon as my uh, liver gives out, that'll be the time. <laughs> no uh, point to living but, after but that. But your childhood, would, would you say that that had any kind of influence in your Pretty your much viewpoint? not uh, in terms of having lived in Asia. However, within my family, we're very obsessed with food and we're very serious about food. Every vacation we took was very much focused around food. Like we went to Japan and then the idea to go to Kyoto and look at like the sites came up. Really what we did was we went to Kyoto and went to Eden Kaiseki restaurants. We went to, you know, Egypt. We went to the States quite a bit all over Europe. Uh, we traveled quite a lot and a lot within India. And everything we did as a family kind of focused around food. Even be it a Disney World, we went to Epcot Center and tried to eat in all of the restaurants. You know, that was like... Uh, a, a great obsession of my family's and, mm -hmm. and still remains the case today. And uh, so when I ended up in food, I often in my early days of my career used to say I kind of backed into it. I don't know. It just happened because I'd been doing it all this time. But when I really think back on it, I've, I've had that uh, interest and focus my entire life. And you didn't realize. And none of them are in the food industry. Oh, no, absolutely not. Thank God. <laughs> my, my parents are both accountants and my, my sister is a consultant. She's an actuary. Uh, so, so they they stuck with math. <laughs> were they supportive of your decision? Superbly so. I mean, you know, we're uh, uh, somewhat of an atypical Asian family in that uh, both me and my sister were actually born here in the states, mm -hmm. even though we we both uh, grew up in India from the very very young age. So my folks had already kind of seen the world by the time they started the family, and uh, they had a, a different perspective on things. My family is very supportive of me. 
partially because I'm very successful, I think, and that's that's uh, a godsend, and I'm very lucky in that way. But also, they can see that I do what I love, and that's the most important thing to them. That's great. And then you left finance, and you decide you want to make your way back into right. the restaurant. So industry. I was working what, at what this restaurant there? in New Jersey called the Ryland Inn. Mm-hmm. Um, I got there because I was taking a course at Cook College at Rutgers, which was like a one-credit throwaway called Introduction to Organic Farm Planning. I figured I'd meet some attractive women, so I took that course. You know, it was on the agricultural campus, the sort of earthy types, which I seemed to be into at the time. I uh, ended up being offered uh, via that class a internship at the garden at the Ryland Inn, which is a restaurant which had a five-acre organic garden, which fed the restaurant and, and provided for the restaurant. Really incredible experience. I worked the whole summer there, basically wow. for leeks and strawberries. Um, and met some amazing chefs in the process who had come there during that summer to see what the program was like. Like I remember I met uh, Paul Lebrand for the first time before anyone knew his name when he came out there to do a dinner. I met uh, Thomas Keller there for the first time. Not that these guys would remember me from that, but these they would walk down to the garden to check out the operation, and uh, I knew who they were, well, except for Paul. Uh, really interesting stuff. It was a great restaurant, amazing program, uh, amazing wine list, uh, really, really great uh, chef Craig Shelton, who knew a lot about wine, thought about wine in his cuisine a lot, which was eye-opening to me as well. Uh, and an opportunity presented itself for me to work in the wine program. This is uh, now 2002, 2003, so we're uh, it really in the depths of the financial crisis. It's also right after uh, the legislation was passed that uh, pharmaceutical companies couldn't entertain the way that they used to, and they used to be great clients for the Ryland Inn because Merck's ca- uh, international campus is right next door. So the restaurant took quite a hit financially, and uh, that was awful for the restaurant, but very lucky for me because we were on a moratorium for buying wine, which meant I could just start opening wines that are in the cellar and uh, have uh, you know such an interest in wine and such a uh, such access so early was a great great boon to me. I learned a great deal. And do you remember some of the influential bottles? Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, everyone talks about their epiphany bottle. I had an epiphany bottle there. There was like forty-five bottles of a wine that it's funny it comes full circle because uh, the bottle I brought to your house when you moved into the apartment building was from the same producer, Christoffel. And uh, these were nineteen seventy-one Urziger Wurzgarten Auslese Riesling from Germany from the Mosul. Uh, three-star outside. I, and, you know, I looked at these things. I was like, how, how good th- could they be? The glass is green. I couldn't tell if that was the color of the wine or the glass. We cut the capsule. There was like this huge cap of mold underneath the capsule. And it stank. It smelled terrible. I was like, this is no way this could be good. You know, I didn't know anything about wine at the time. I realized that actually that was what kept the wine so fresh. So we wiped off the mold, pulled the cork. It crumbled to pieces. I was like, well, this is basically a waste of time, but let's try it. If it's any good, we can pour it. You know, but it looks like we might just throw this away. I poured a, a, a small glass. I was in the cellar with the other sommelier, and we, we both smelled it, and both of our eyes lit up. Just never having smelled anything so opulent and complex at the same time uh, really, really opened my eyes to what that grape could be or what a great wine could be. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, okay, this isn't just a racket. Maybe there's something to this. Yeah. Fast forward a few years for you. Um, you worked at Crew. Yes. Uh, great wine. One of the greatest wine destinations, uh, certainly of the time, but maybe ever in New York. That was uh, a fun experience. Again, actually, poor timing in, in a sense, uh, because the, my first day at Crew was the day that uh, uh, Fanny and Freddie Mac tanked and Lehman Brothers went down. It was like Black Tuesday. Uh, I didn't see the glory days at Crew, but it was still a lot of fun. And we mm-hmm. got as we drank well and people would come there and drink some great wine. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I never had the uh, the bank account to really explore the list, but 
one of the ways that I that I did get into the crew list a little bit was through some of those older and off-vintage Rieslings. Totally. That's but how I, I ended up working there, because I was a bar regular. I would come there and cherry-pick my way through uh, their German collection. Really truly, incredible. Like, truly outstanding. I feel like that's one of the things I like to do. Is that is that also your uh, your move to find better producers? And Of course. And, and you know... Uh, uh, I don't have the bank account to do <laughs> the, the kind of drinking that I do either. That's one of the great boons to the, the business that we're in. We get to drink beyond our means. Uh, but I, I definitely used to do that at Crew. And what was great about Crew, at least in the early days, it became less so towards the end because of depletion and because uh, the times were different. But, uh, there, yeah, there were those amazing wines. And really the best value on the wine list was probably like 34 Romani Conti because it was like $10,000 cheaper than it should have been. But it was still many thousands of dollars and I couldn't afford it. But if you wanted to spend like 75 to $150, you could drink some of the greatest wines in the world well undervalued. And and so I learned a lot from that list. Uh, I still do. I, I still keep PDFs of it around and, and like refer to it to learn stuff. Uh, just really really it was an incredible place and i worked in some great restaurants in between and before that for sure uh for many years but i i didn't work in a restaurant where the um the energy completely came out of the wine program which was definitely the case at crew and that was that was rewarding for me because then when i moved on from there uh and started working at danielle i realized that that's what i wanted i wanted to create a spark and an interest in wine that uh if it couldn't be at the same level as the chef, which, you know, Daniel Balut is a lot of personality and a lot of talent, and his restaurant group is very chef-driven, and it's it's meant to be that the chef is the star of the show, and the food, of course, is the reason that people come there, but I wanted also to build a program that had that spark of a wine interest. And would you say, uh, and not to put words in your mouth, but would you, would you say that you've strategically placed some wines at truly excellent values so that the people who know them is that something that you you know people who know them would get excited like oh that wine is a hundred percent so and also I I've I just say that I I've noticed that from your list and like oh man like if you know that if you know that wine that is that should right. cost a lot more than it does for sure and th- there's tons of stuff like that on the list uh, which I've been able to buy p- partially because a lot of the wines that you know we're referring to in those sense tend to be a little uh, esoteric or you know maybe not the most focused I think in you know here in, at Roberta's maybe half the clientele would know Chinons from Jogue or you know, Clos Rougeard, but maybe that isn't such a big focus on the Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. So those wines are overlooked, you know, some great wines from the Jura, for example. Uh, four years ago when I got there, I'd buy a case of it and probably still have some. Uh, so there, there's a lot of stuff like that, and that is part of the, the reason. But also, I, I try and do that on the scale from the low end of the wine list in terms of price to the very, very high. So just as uh, it was at Crew, but maybe to a lesser degree, you know, the Jogues are uh, f- that I have from the mid-90s for 125 bucks are a great deal for anybody. But, you know, the 05 Romani Conti is under market value, too. So yeah. ho- hopefully people, uh, and, and not just hopefully, but people do pay attention to that. And really, we have people coming in there to drink bottles and then... Uh, and having bottles in mind, having checked them out already at all ends of the scale and then build their dinner around that. Yeah. Do you, so do you have a lot of people calling you ahead of time to maybe Tons. decant happens wine? happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, what happens more and more now, and this is a, a great um, compliment to me, and I, uh, it really makes me feel good that I've been able to build this community there, is a lot of people call me and just say that they want to come in and that I should think about wines that they should drink. So they, they trust me to, to build that experience for them along with the chef. And, you know, this wouldn't work if the food was, uh, you know, incapable of pairing along with what they wanted to drink. It also wouldn't work if the chef was so hard-headed and incapable of seeing that the whole experience of food and wine together is so important. Uh, it's only because Jean-Francois Bruel and Danielle and uh, the chef de cuisine, Eddie LaRue, are so 
intelligent about wine and about the guest experience and that they really care what the guest experience is, that they don't have their egos fighting with the possibilities of, of creating something magical. Yeah. And uh, they I, make it work. At least from that, you know, the times that I've been there, I would, I would wholeheartedly agree with you on that. that it is a, a restaurant that is truly guest driven. You say, you know, you say it's chef driven. It is really guest driven. You feel For sure. that, really... that, that's just Danielle's, uh, you know, everything comes from the head and Danielle is the most generous, most, uh, sort of giving person that you can come across. Like, uh, sometimes we have to rein him in. Otherwise he might just give the whole place away. Uh, he, he really cares what, people's experience are he cares about people and he's a he's a human being with a real emotion for for taking care of people yeah all right so we're going to take a short break and i have a ton of questions to ask you about restaurant danielle so uh we're gonna take a short break we'll be right back on in the drink on heritage radio network.org The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at InternationalCulinaryCenter.com. We're back on In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm here with my good buddy Raj, the head sommelier at Restaurant Danielle. Raj, uh, tell us about how you first got introduced to the uh, to Danielle's restaurant group and uh, Restaurant Danielle and what that process was like. Um, this is one of the most highly coveted you know, sommelier jobs, wine jobs in the city. Uh, how'd you get there? Well, I'm I'm just extremely lucky, I guess. <laughs> well, um, how I got turned on to Daniel Balut, obviously. I mean, the guy's super famous, and he's had a great restaurant or a series of great restaurants for many years. In fact, this is their 20th anniversary of Restaurant Danielle. I would even 19- say it's it's required reading for someone who wants to work in the restaurant totally. industry. You got to go to Restaurant Danielle. It's it's someone who's been doing it at the highest level for such a long time. Yeah. For, for sure. Um, so obviously I knew about Danielle. I think the first time I went to Restaurant Danielle was in 2001 for dinner with my sister. And the guy who's still, who's like the captain in the lounge now was our captain and did the cheese course for us. And like Jean-Luc Ledoux opened the bottle of wine for us. It was pretty cool. Uh, and formative actually for me. I learned a lot by that experience. Fast forward to 2000 and. Eight, 2009, I guess. I got wind in 2008 that Philippe Marshall, my predecessor at Danielle, was uh, either looking to leave or had already left. It was kind of a, a shrouded in clouds. So I reached out to Daniel Jonas, uh, who I, I knew somewhat from around the wine business in New York, and obviously is a very influential, very uh, impressive personality uh, uh, historically in New York and in the wine world. And specifically with wines, and of one Burgundy. of his great accomplishments, he has been on uh, in the drink. He's been on in the drink. Been, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you made it all the way here. Uh, this is closer to his house than Danielle, for what it's worth. So he probably comes here more often than Danielle. Uh, 
And so I reached out to him, uh, said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in work. I'm working at Crew right now, but things aren't going so well. I mean, I, I was having a great time, and, uh, but the restaurant wasn't doing very well. And also, uh, I had started at Crew kind of just to fill some time. I had been doing consulting work and tried to start a company exporting wines from Europe. And, and you know, uh, as things kind of fizzled out at the end of 08, as they did for many people, um, I, I started looking for the next thing. So... Uh, it was a long process, actually. I had first conversed with Daniel, actually, at uh, uh, the French Institute, FIAF, because I was teaching a class, of all things, on Burgundy. It was the first class I was teaching during a series, and uh, it makes you a little nervous when they invite Daniel Donis to come and sit in the first row. I'm like, great. Wow. <laughs> I just emailed this guy about a job, so I guess this is my interview. Damn it. <laughs> about, and yeah, and you're speaking about the subject that he knows Yeah, exactly. I was best. like, I better not screw this up. So every once in a while, I just asked him a question to like, continue the uh the conversation with you know a room full of 100 people uh fast forward a few weeks uh i met with hr then a couple of months go by conversations continue it was kind of a slow process uh, at least for me but meanwhile i was working at crew and i was having a good time you know it was still a, a great wine mecca and we got to open some great bottles all the time so i was i was feeling okay about it and besides it was springtime it was hard not to feel uh happy finally um after another conversation with Daniel, uh, expressing my specific interests, I, I sat down with uh, Danielle and with Daniel Jonas. Uh, originally, they, they still needed a sommelier DB Bistro, and they were talking about that. And I was like, I'm not so interested in that, but I would do it because it's such a great group. And I think if there's the opportunity to grow within the group, then I'm willing to do that for a little while. Uh, it's just a small list, and it, I felt like it would be a little boring for me after working at Crew. Uh, for obvious reasons, there's a smaller restaurant, a smaller mm-hmm. uh, wine list, and also, uh, you know, it's a bistro, so the wines tend to be a little simpler. Um, after a great w- spot, for, by the way, though, I've I've really enjoyed. There's there's not a lot if you're going to go to a show in that kind of area. For sure, that, that is quality, yeah. and, and it's going to be even better. They're uh, actually renovating it right now. I, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't been to DB Bistro since. Uh, well, I'm not sure when, but Jean-Francois Bruel, who's the executive chef of Danielle for the last eight years, was the chef of DB Bistro oh, last wow. time I went there. So, Not, not that I'm big on the, on the Broadway circuit, but Book of Mormon and a little dinner at DB Bistro is... Good to know. That's good times. That's good living. <laughs> good to know. Uh, I never go to Broadway shows either, so it doesn't come up often enough. But anyway... Uh, after the conversation with Danielle and telling him about my my experience, you know, I'd worked in restaurants like Danielle my entire life. Uh, actually, Crew was probably the most uh, casual restaurant I'd worked in in those ten years. So he he clearly saw that if there was a place for me in the company, it was at Danielle. He wasn't convinced that they needed somebody full time at that point. There hadn't been a buyer though for six months. Uh, Christy Petrullo's an amazing talent had been maintaining the restaurant, but they they'd kind of like. Uh, said to her that they wanted her to work at DB Bistro, so she wasn't running the program uh, as the buyer. She was just kind of being overseen by Jonas and, and maintaining the status quo. So when I got in there finally in May of 2009, uh, the list was smaller than what I expected, but that was kind of nice because uh, I got to mold it a little bit. But it still took a couple of years before I felt that uh, it was quite at the level that I wanted it to be. And so let's talk about that list. You look at the the list at Danielle, and as we said, there are a lot of great values all over the list, but there are you know, I, I know as as a wine buyer, you can't just call up one of your distributors and order the wines from a local distributor that are on the list there. There's super uh, old vintages, rare wines, highly allocated wines. There, there's all sorts of stuff that that uh, that you know you get really excited about, but that's extremely difficult and challenging to find. That that's the biggest part of my job, I'd say. I, I kind of have two jobs. Uh 
during the day I'm a trader, just like I was 10 years ago. And at night I'm a salesperson, just like I've been my entire service uh, life anyway. Um, so where do I find the wine, I guess is the question. And yes. the answer is I'm not telling you, uh, <laughs> but I'm telling you how. You know, I work a lot with brokers in Europe uh, and a number of different retailers and auction houses uh, based here in New York. I work a great deal with private collections. and. Mm -hmm. Part of that I can't take credit for because just being at Danielle and cre st starting to build a very focused and uh, inventive and extensive list brings attention to people to come and drink there. And then a lot of them have collections and they're like, oh, you know what I have, which I don't necessarily want a lot of. Like there's a, a, a gentleman who lives around the corner who happens to own a winery in Napa and he doesn't drink a lot of California wine anymore. So he uh, was in for dinner the other day drinking wine off the wine list, not his own wine either, and said, oh, you know what? I have a bunch of old Opus One uh, going back to like the late 70s. Would you be interested? Absolutely. So people do approach me with private sellers quite a bit. Um, knowing some of the collector community in the New York, New Jersey area helps a great deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and that comes partially out of crew and a great deal out of Danielle. You know, a lot of these wine societies like the Chevalier de Testavon and the Commanderie de Bordeaux, the Rhone Society, these guys who have a lot of wine and a lot of wine experience do events at Danielle a lot in the private room. And, and Danielle, uh, along with his catering company, Feast and Fet, does events off-site, which sometimes I'm, I get involved in as well. So um, the exposure to people who either have the wine or have access are the bulk of the way I get it. So someone comes and says, I, I have all this wine. You've never worked with them before. Do you sense, do you essentially work as like an auction specialist? Will you go visit their seller? I usually like to go see a seller. Yeah. Um, if it's, inconvenient or impossible because after all i work you know five six days a week and it's uh, you know if their seller is their country home in like you know three hours away in connecticut it doesn't sound like a good way for me to spend my day off so i typically will just have taste bottles from the seller mm -hmm. and have them send you some bottles and, you yeah. know uh, you come to know these guys you, you they come to la palais they they go to these wine events they bring wines from their own seller you come to realize like who are the serious collectors and who aren't how are they sourcing their wine like did they buy the wine 20 years ago did they buy the wine last week from zaki's uh, you know, if they bought the one last week from Zaki's, then so did I. So, uh, you know, the chance of them being offered just uh, the bottles being offered just about the same as uh, what I would buy. So there's no reason to go to them. I work a lot with uh, reputable brokers, though, um, several here in the States and then a couple in Europe. And the way that that works is, again, yeah, you, you tell me, because that is uh, an area that I have never uh, explored whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Well, it's exactly like it sounds. I mean, mm -hmm. essentially, it would be a retail offering, except that, uh, you know, restaurants can't buy from retailers. So most of the brokers have some means, either a New York based company that clears the wine through them and then you have to pay that company uh, in accordance or their distributors or auction houses themselves. Purchasing on auction has been a huge um, source for me at Danielle because especially getting started, I didn't want to invest so uh, so long on purchases because when you buy wine in Europe, you have to bring it in yourself through mm -hmm. an importing company and then have a, a distributor pick it up and bring it through, which uh, we sometimes can do internally. It's It takes a long time, but you have to pay when you buy the wine. So there might be six months before you get the bottles in or two months. Uh, and that's a long investment. Uh, in the early days at Danielle, I tried not to do that for obvious reasons because I, I didn't want to extend myself. Now the program's pretty big, and I've been given a l slightly looser leash to to increase the program over time. So now uh, where it makes sense as an investment, I definitely do because I, I know it'll be worthwhile uh, in the long run. Yeah, and do you ever buy wine and then not list it? I'm sure that Oh, tons. There's a, get, lot, yeah. there's a lot of wine that isn't on the list. Also, part of building the list to... Uh, a lot of attention to making sure that it was sustainable. And so I started buying mature wine that I could sell immediately. 
and kept buying mature wine that I could sell immediately and also continued to buy young wine, which then, depending on what the wine was, I'd sell three, four, five, six bottles out of a case maybe and keep the rest uh, Mm -hmm. off the list. Or if it's super highly allocated, sometimes I never list it and just offer it to people who I know are looking for it. Because oftentimes if you have something like a 2011 Burgundy at the very, very top end, I'd have to put it on the wine list for five or six grand. And it's not really worth that in terms of the experience today. Like I I can't say the drinking 2010 Romani Conti is going to give you a $15,000 experience, but probably from, I'm guessing a number here. I don't actually know what the value is, but you know, that's what I would have to sell it for. Um, And so I'd rather have it, you know, sit in the cellar until its value catches up. Uh, It's it's experiential value catches up with its dollar value Mm -hmm. in the market. And then I can probably offer it at what seems like a a good value to some people um, who are drinking wines like that. And the same thing is true for uh, Bourgogne Blanc or Bourgogne Rouge, you know. Uh, like to keep a few bottles like that around, and, and uh, then there's some more allocated things. I think those are some of the good. Those are some of the like. If I'm coming in, I might drink totally. a Bourgogne Blanc but, from but also, a great from a great producer that has sure. a few years of age. Like, oh, that's well, you know, wa- like uh, winemakers like Auvergnat or Suho or some of these guys where the wines aren't necessarily like they need a roadmap. They need somebody to hold your hand and walk you through it, especially if you're accustomed to drinking very clean wines uh, that maybe are a little bit more. Bordelais and factory produce, or even on the other side of things, maybe you've just filtered uh, something with more consistency. If I put stuff like that on the wine list, then somebody might order it without knowing what they're doing. And so uh, they may not have a great experience. I don't really want to put people in that situation. It's a big list. There's over 3,000 bins. If someone's sitting there and going through the list, they feel um, you know uncomfortable in that situation, especially if they're with guests and they want to look like they know what they're doing. They order a wine like that. It, it doesn't turn out to be the experience they want, but they feel uncomfortable bringing it up or complaining about it or, or asking for help, then, uh, then I'm not doing them a service. So I'd r- rather have stuff like that that's a little more challenging. I tend to keep it off the list and uh, only bring it out for people who I think will really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it's available to anybody, but people have to ask for it, you know, if, uh, and people do. People say, yeah, what, what we do is uh, sometimes with, with wines like that, uh, maybe not list the grape, <laughs> you know, because well, I don't they, list the grape variety anyway. Everything's by region because it, it's just too complicated. Right. Otherwise. And yeah, predominantly French list with some American 80% and, French, mm-hmm. uh, definitely. It's mostly France and mostly Burgundy, uh, tons of Bordeaux, uh, great. Rhone Is list. that what pe- would you say people are drinking mostly Burgundy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's become a mostly Burgundy house. I'd say since I got there, uh, there was uh, several years where we almost sell the same amount of dollars as Burgundy and Bordeaux, but we sell like twice as many liters of Burgundy. So like mostly what people are buying in Bordeaux is the high end. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some values in Burgundy. It's totally. They exist. And in Bordeaux. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about the Bordeaux values actually. Yeah. Uh, you got to come and visit. Uh, the, the cool thing about Bordeaux is that uh, people tend to overlook the fact that wines from the seventies and eighties cost as as little or as or less than current vintages from the same wineries and the current vintages aren't necessarily a great experience so if uh, so i really troll the market for older bordeaux that i can buy at a fairly low cost you know because a lot of people don't drink those wines mm-hmm. i also think that bordeaux is one thing that like in collectors in the 60s 70s 80s even the 90s bought bordeaux every year they bought the same chateau every year and they they maybe lost interest in the wines, or maybe they had too much wine, they couldn't get through it all. So there's a lot of that out there. And it's cheap compared to buying, you know, like I, I just bought some 82 Rosenzegla for like 
uh, I think ninety dollars a bottle, which uh, I'm probably going to list for like two two fifty. And uh, the current vintage of Rosenzegla sells for like eighty five dollars a bottle. And it's not delicious, you know. It's two thousand ten. It's not. It's not uh, the tannins. And aren't the way the wines that were made back in those days, they also, needed twenty thirty years. For, for sure, but also I think there's an elegance to the wines from that era that maybe the 2010 won't uh, be able to mimic. You know, uh, times are different, techniques are different, uh, the climate is different. Yeah, all of those things. I, I like those wines better. The so let's talk about uh, the other part of your job, which is uh, your service on the floor, sales yep. and service on the floor. Um, yeah, Danielle is uh, predominantly or only tasting menu. Is it? No, no. We we offer a prefix oh, in pre- the main dining room of three courses, mm-hmm. and you can also go opt for a tasting menu six or eight courses or or more if you're very hungry uh but we also have the lounge area which is the bar and then the dining room above the bar where we offer uh, a la carte you can have anything you want okay and then do most people opt for a wine pairing situation a or? lot i'd say probably like 30 percent of our clientele does okay how do you how do you approach that uh pretty openly i mean you know we have pricing structures for everything and within that structure we have i have free range to do whatever i want uh so i I'd like to talk a little bit to the guests. If they really are uh, food tourists, as I would like to say, and they they don't want to make any decisions, they don't have any preconceived ideas about wines that they like mm-hmm. or, or things that they don't like, um, and, and they're totally open, then I take it as free reign to do something fun. And uh, I try and pick wines that... Uh, you know, wine pairing is difficult for people to have a great wine experience. Like, you really have to work for it. The In a wine pairing, you're getting about an ounce to two ounces of wine per course. So what you're getting is a snapshot. You're getting a snapshot of a wine. You're getting a, that moment of that wine along with the food that you're being served. I know the food pretty well now. So I, I, can, I can figure out what I'm looking for in terms of the snapshot I want to deliver. But it's such a short window that it has to be quite exact. Uh, this, in my opinion, rules out wines with a lot of age to them. Because mm-hmm. I think that if uh, you have a bottle of wine that's been properly aged, the beginning of taste after you uncork the bottle to the very end is the whole wine. Whereas a snapshot in between uh, could be good or bad, depending on the food. And it's very hard to, to manage that. You know, you can't open the wine with exactly those many seconds before you're serving it with the swordfish with corn. And then afterwards, what do you do with the rest of the bottle? You know, so it's fiscally uh, nonsensible. nonsensible. So uh, I tend to pick younger wines, uh, which have a lot of forward fruit, very expressive Um Things that where you look at the snapshot, you get a great experience. You're not getting the whole experience of that wine either, because I still think that you you know you drink a bottle of wine that's from 2010 or 2011, you have a whole experience if you drink the whole bottle or get to sit with it over time. But since we're looking for a snapshot, I want something that really delivers mm-hmm. uh, an opulent, awesome experience in the short window. So that that's generally what I uh, pick, and then you know I. I combine either using wines by the glass or new items that I brought in, things from the cellar. We have so much wine that it's it's pretty easy to play. Yeah, yeah. And then when someone's doing uh, maybe not a wine pairing, how what do you, what kind of wines do you think if someone's going to order a bottle really best uh, pair with the largest amount of food because, there? Because it's a menu. Even with the three course prefix, I mean, there's there's four seafood main courses plus a, uh, an addition for the day, four meats plus an addition for the day, tons of different garnish options because it's pretty complex food. The appetizers are kind of all over the place. You can have anything from foie gras to raw fish to, you know, hot seafood. So 
if people are looking for a bottle, I tend to pick wines that are high acid so that they continue to refresh the palate and also bring forth the, uh, the bright flavors in the dishes. Uh, wines that are low alcohol in general because uh, the food is very delicate. And if you're tasting something that has a sweetness from glycerol, it can really overwhelm a lot of the dishes uh, and the subtleties in the dishes, which are, are I think, what makes Danielle's food so special. And um, I, I tend to pink wines that are, you know, are au point, that are drinking well right now, you know, and that could be a great vintage or a vintage that's just ready to drink today. I recommend Burgundy a lot. Uh, I think it works really well with his yeah. food. If people are having a meat-heavy uh, experience or are drinking, uh, you know, a red only with their main courses and they're, they're leaning on meat, uh, we go to the Rhone quite a lot. Uh, I think that Northern Rhone, I Northern Rhone a yeah. lot, but n- not exclusively, but generally. I mean, Daniel's from that area of France, and and his food really relates to that. I think that rusticity and the, those animal game flavors. Like we just put uh, gra- a Scottish grouse on the menu, and it'll be on for the next few weeks while we're in the season. I don't, I can't think of another chef in, in New York that like serves grouse every year, and it's like an awesome time of year for me because I'm like, all right, and break out the cornas, you know. Um, I recommend a lot of German wine, actually. Um, uh, dry and off dry I think it works really well because it's just like champagne which al- also gets a lot of play at Danielle it's um, a free pass to kind of pair with a very diverse menu so if people are going to have hamachi and then have grouse you know <laughs> probably they'll be better off with champagne than they will with uh, a bottle of something too delicate for either dish right yeah it's it's those those kind of gateway wines that pair with majority of dishes because you're not going to find something that pairs perfectly with one and then perfectly with with the other nor are you going to find one wine that pairs perfectly with four people at the table eating the same thing true you know that's the nature of wine it's so subjective you kind of of hedge it you you want to create a great experience yeah Yeah. uh, and and there is there might be such a thing as like a perfect pairing but i think a great wine experience can meld with a great food experience without having to pay too much attention to uh whether or not every element of the dish pairs with the, the moment of the wine because as i said people are drinking a bottle they're going to have an experience over time that's changing it's constantly yep. evolving uh so you know just try and make it good yeah uh, i just want to ask you i know uh, you go to uh my new neighborhood spot franny's quite a bit um what are restaurant in new york <laughs> where else can we find you drinking uh, well, I uh, have a habit of visiting your restaurants from time to time. We appreciate uh, that very <laughs> so much. I live in the neighborhood, as you know, obviously. Uh, uh, some of my other favorites. I, I recently have fallen in love with this place, Uncle Boone's in uh, Soho. It's so, so good. good. Uh, two chefs that I worked with at Per Se years ago who are just like doing authentic, awesome Thai food who aren't afraid of seasoning. And I, I really, really love that place. Um the Pearl and Ash downtown. I really like the food there and the wine list. Of course, Patrick Capiello, uh, he's a just dear friend of all it. of us. Yeah. Great all right. Place. So, so Alex is giving us the uh, the nod. I could talk to Raj. I could talk to you all day. We we chatted the whole way over here on the train. We'll we'll chat the whole way back. Um, but if you guys haven't been yet, uh, it's 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 worth it. It is a hundred percent worth it. There is uh, great value in the experience that you get at at Danielle, even though it is certainly a fine dining experience. Uh, it's a fine dining experience, but it's a real restaurant, so it feels good. It feels you, you feel great. So, uh, Raj, I appreciate. It. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an honor to have you here. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, 
or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.